So what happens when we stop and, and look inside? It's uh, different for each individual and different moment by moment for each of us. And that is the, the very teaching that we're here to remember, that all of our experience is changing all the time. And the, the sense of self that we live from much of the time, we maybe have a few that we live from, they're just uh, convenient constructs so that we can function in the world. They're not ultimately who and what we are. So when we stop and slow down and look at our experience, we see if we're looking in the right way with the Dharma eyes, we see a constant change. Feelings that arise like bubbles and appear to be real and then pass away again. Sensations, thoughts, <coughs> perceptions that can shift 180 degrees from one day to the next about the same thing. So how real are these? How real are these feelings, these perceptions, these thoughts. They seem very real in the moment and very important often. And yet if we just stay open and interested, we find that they change. And meanwhile, there's a a knowing of that change. There's the awareness of the changing experience of this life. We get very uh, hooked onto the, the this and that of our experience. And it feels very real. And it does have a certain importance on a, on a conventional level. In terms of our daily life, it does matter. How we, you know, we do need a certain degree of, of comfort and uh, support and certainly in well-being in our own hearts and minds. Because without that, we're, we're just struggling to survive. So a certain amount is needed. But then beyond a certain amount, beyond enough, it just becomes more tweaking, tweaking the world to make it fit the way we want it to be. And just even sitting in this room, some people will be hot, some people will be cold. Some people will feel it's stuffy, some people feel it needs to be a bit more cosy, you know. So we can't tweak it to be right. We can only tweak it to be the way we like it for a while, so that we don't have to experience discomfort. I think the Western culture has has become very sophisticated in avoiding discomfort, trying to avoid discomfort. So we put the discomfort outside somewhere else, other people have to deal with that. 
so that we can be comfortable. Our luxurious lives can be on the backs of other people's struggle. But the truth is that we're not separate. We're all interconnected, interbeing. So so it's important to learn how to be with the realities of life, the discomfort, the change. To know what enough is. Good enough. So when we take this body and mind that we carry around, we live with day in, day out, when we take this to be really truly me and mine, we're kind of, uh, we're living in an illusion. So on a conventional level, it's true, you know, there's Nanda Bodhi here, there's Sobhana there, Asantachita there, Marcy there, lots of other people out there. That's true. And it's also true that this is just a process that's coming together right now, like this. And that the cho- choices we make influence the direction our life takes. So, uh, the Buddha made it very simple in some ways. He just would ask, is it wholesome or is it unwholesome? Is what we're wanting to do wholesome or unwholesome? Is it, is it beneficial to ourselves or unbeneficial? Is it beneficial to others or is it unbeneficial to others? It's kind of really simple. But we make it much more complicated. So if you come back to those very simple criteria, you know, are these thoughts beneficial or unbeneficial? Are they helping or are they not? Is this speech beneficial or unbeneficial to me or others? Is what I'm doing in my life, my actions, are they beneficial or unbeneficial? Wholesome or unwholesome? So it's just this really simple criteria in, in some ways. And of course there are, there are grey areas because we can do good things and then get lost in, in uh, unskillful mind states in the midst of them. So speaking with someone about activism, so what motivates activism often, social activism, political activism, can be very wholesome, very wholesome intention. And then, the, and then in, the, in the process of doing, you know, that standing up against what injustice uh, can be just um, cultivating more and more anger and ill will, so then that's like not benefiting our, ourselves. So we might be benefiting some big picture, but it's there's a, there's a poison in there too that's growing. So lo- learning how to, you know, recognize what is, what is wholesome, what is beneficial to others, and also what is wholesome within this own heart and mind. Because if the wellspring here, if the water that's coming from here is clean and good to drink from this heart and mind, then it is good for everyone to drink. It, it's, it goes out for the benefit of all beings. Whereas if it's polluted here, we're angry about pollution, and this is polluted here, it's like 
we're, we're adding to the pollution in the world. So we can do something about this, and we can do something, some degree, about what's going on out there too. I think it's really important that those who are moved to, that, that we do speak out and do what we can. But we, we can directly take care of what's going on here, in this heart and mind, body, speech and mind. And uh, sometimes we can just clutter up like, the river of this heart and mind, the river of this mind stream with all kinds of regrets of the past and fears about the future and, and nonsense, this kind of rubbish that we put in there from the you know, internet and social media and TV and all that stuff. So we can just clutter it up with loads of rubbish. That's like having a beautiful stream or a river that we're just chucking all our trash into. <coughs> and we're wondering why the water's not good to drink and why we don't want to hang around that river anymore. It's because we've chucked a load of rubbish into it. So, you know, in the retreat we're clearing away that rubbish. We're getting we're recycling the trash, putting it where it needs to be. And uh, letting it move on in the world. Like everything, everything's everything's in this state of transition. So when we when we hold on to things too long, whether that's physically or, or psychologically, emotionally, then we, we become cluttered. And uh, the whole system starts to break down because it's meant to be in transition. Everything is in transition. Every, every living thing, every inanimate thing is in transition. So, uh, so we let, we start clearing out the trash on this retreat. It's not to, not to turn and look and say, oh my goodness, that's such a mess. I've got to go and do something else or put some concrete over it so I don't have to look, you know. It doesn't work. So we need to clear it out and be willing to get our hands dirty a bit in the process, you know. And not to take any of it as, as to who and what I am. This is all, is, just as a river is, is not a thing, it is a, is a dynamic process. So this river of life is not a thing. This coming into being at this time is not a solid thing. And so we need to take care of it. So clearing out the trash and then opening up those uh, sources of clear spring water. And the Dhamma is the, is the the sweetest, most beautiful spring water, and it's accessible. It's accessible in many ways. It's accessible through uh, books and through uh, teachings, listening to teachings, through even the scriptures, so widely available now. And it's also accessible through nature, through just observing nature, observing the the cycle of a tree or how a woodland is, um, is the coming together of many beings to, to create a whole, a balanced whole. So, or just looking at a, a stream and just recognizing this is, there are causes and conditions that come together to make this stream happen. And the, the raindrops fall, the water collects, the, the stream is born. And, uh, and it runs into a river, and eventually the river runs into the ocean. 
And so, you know, we, we, we give streams and rivers names. We make them into things. But once they get to the mouth of the ocean, even at the mouth of the ocean, we can still give them names. And then, then we can't call them anything anymore because there's no separation. So just like that, our lives are like streams. They're just here for a while and we give them a name. And uh, they have, you know, different characters and all of that, just as streams do, creeks do. But at some point they, they all, you know, the, the body goes back to the earth, the water goes back to the water element. Fire element returns to its uh, kind of non-abiding state, it sort of hangs out there. And... Uh, air element, last breath. So we don't have to wait till the last breath, but each breath that we take, each breath that we take is we're letting go, there's an ending. We take the in-breath is a birth, this comes to its fullness and then there's an ending as it, as it leaves us. So we can see the Dhamma right here with our own breath, with our own body, in our environment, it's, uh, it's available all the time. So the attuning ourselves, clearing out the, the spring of the Dhamma so that water can flow freely into our hearts and minds. And, and, and that also helps to, to clear out some of the trash that's accumulated. And also, you know, what we do. So, you know, generosity is like a spring water. Fresh spring water it brings joy, brings refreshment. Keeping a sila, keeping an ethical life, it's like a a source. It can be a source of gladness to ourselves, and it's a source of safety to other people in this crazy world where pretty much anything goes and can be justified. So sila is uh, is like a wellspring. And then uh, recollecting our, our goodness, our virtue, our generosity, remembering it, not just doing good, but remembering it, recollecting daily, I would say daily, if not more than daily, but at least daily, recollecting our goodness. <clears throat> and uh, not only recollecting what went wrong, what we're doing wrong, what's not good enough, the failures. So daily recollection. Then at the end of each day here, we're sharing the merit of our practice for the benefit of all sentient beings. And uh, I like to think of that as, uh, often it's the image of merit, punya, is like water. And uh, it's said that when the Buddha was um, you know, under the Bodhi tree, just having reached enlightenment at that, at that moment of, of reaching enlightenment. And the hordes of Mara are coming to try and pull him off track at the last minute, desperately. And uh, he touches the earth. And the earth goddess comes up out of the earth and says, you know, 
he, he calls witness to the earth, and the earth goddess comes up out of the earth, and she wrings her hair, she's got long hair, she wrings her hair, and, and this floods of water come out of her hair. And she's saying, this, these are the merits of the, of the Bodhisattva, Siddhartha Gautama. And she's wringing her hair, and there's like the, the water of the merits of his life wash away all of the hordes of Mara, all of the, the arrows, the weapons, the sedu- sedu- seducers, the, the liars of Mara are all washed away by the merits of, of this Bodhisattva on the brink of awakening. And so that full realization occurs. So I like to think of the, like the, the waters of our merits. And the merits come through having the right intention, being aligned, and, and the right action in the world, and balance. And, and some people, I know there are people here who maybe give too much. So you need to maybe sit on the bank of the river for a while and take a rest. There's others who, who maybe give a lot, but there's so much clutter in the river that they don't see it. The water gets polluted. So you need to prepare the space, prepare the, the riverbed, let's say, of this, of this being of which we are. And, you know, generate merits, generate punya. And then, See them like a stream that you can, when you remember, you can, you can step into that stream. You can lie down in that beautiful, clear stream of your merits and be refreshed. It's a, a tangible experience when you do it. So, uh, you know, maybe you feel like, oh, I just kind of have this little trickle, you know. So if you only have a little trickle, then find opportunities. It's partly what you're doing and partly remembering what you're doing. So it's, it's partly our, a large part of it is our attention, attention and intention. So we can have the good intention, but we don't really notice. We don't really notice the good that we're doing already. We don't notice the effort that we're putting into our practice. We don't notice the little kind gestures that we make for people, sometimes big ones. We just say, oh, yeah, that one. But those things actually need to be remembered and appreciated. And that's not about becoming a big ego. That's not what happens. Because we're, we're knowing, we're recognizing that this is a, this is a stream. This is a constantly changing process of being that we are right now. And we're influenced by our past and our conditioning, and we can influence our present and our future. And that's, uh, like I said, the Chita said yesterday, it's not an insurance policy. Oh, that's a good. It's not an insurance policy that everything's going to be nice and good and lovely, but it's that we'll be able to meet what comes with clarity and wisdom and, um, skillfulness. At least, um, maybe more of the time than we can when we're not conscious. So just really uh, bring to mind that this, this me is not me, but me-ing. This body is not 
just a body, but it's a, a coming together. It's a coming together of many factors at this time. And also the thoughts, you know, that come up, they're, they're just the conditioned arisings. They're not who and what we are. We don't have to solidify around them, become them. We don't have to be slaves to them. And that's not to say that we can just stop thought from happening, because sometimes I wish, you know, we want to just sit and meditate on retreat and stop the thoughts. The thoughts do what they do, you know. We can sometimes turn them around. And, uh, you know, with, with concentration, they can stop for a while. If we, uh, focus, say, on the breath, they can stop for a while, but that's, you know, that's good. We have a little break and then they'll start again. So all of that can happen. That's all good. And then the way we hold it is just as, just as you recognize a, a river or a stream. So it's not like, oh, I've had this great experience. I've had this amazing, uh, experience where my thoughts stopped. You know, it's like, okay, that's what, that's the, that's the beauty of how it is when the thoughts stop. And I like that. It's, it's lovely. Or maybe it's scary. And then there's the, the thoughts again. So we don't have to be always involved up here in the, in the bubbling of the thoughts. We can go deeper. They can still be going on, but we're paying attention to a deeper place. So learning to drop down from the head into the, into the body. So the practice, you know, it, it brings us to many challenges. We meet many challenges in the practice. It's not an easy journey. And, uh, I always, you know, when I first started to meditate, I was so inspired and uplifted by this wonderful thing, meditation. Wow. And I wanted, you know, to tell everybody what a great thing it is because it just makes your life so much better. Then after a while I realized, you know, if you're going to meditate, you've got to really want to meditate because it's difficult. You go through difficult territory. You get the wow, the great bits, and you get the really challenging, arduous times. So, uh, you know, the, the spiritual path, it... It's like a warrior's path, in a way. It asks strength and discipline and clarity. And restraint. So that uh, it's not just, it's just not just a nice journey and it's also not a, a constant fight, but there's like having the, developing the skills and the strength here in this body and mind, and his heart, to be able to meet the challenges of life as they come. And I feel a really important um, aspect of the, of the practice, and maybe not so popular, but very important, is, is contemplation of, of death. So contemplation of the body and contemplation of death. Because you know, everybody, each body here is going to die. And we tend to live as though it isn't going to happen, as though we're going to live forever. 
or it's going to happen sometime way, way, way in the future. But we don't know, actually. We don't know when it's coming. Sorry, I've got a tick on my hand. I'm just going to take it outside. Ticks, the most dangerous creature in America. <laughs> Got to be careful. <laughs> so, uh, so it's very important to to bring to mind you know, the reality of our our impermanence. So, in this morning, chanting about the you know the body is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, all impermanent, and we can sort of say that, oh yeah, it's all impermanent, and then. And and we and yet we still sort of have this idea of being somebody who's going to live for a long time, and you know, sometime in the future we're going to die, maybe, or maybe not. Maybe we don't even think about it. So it's it's uh, the practice of of being present with impermanence, with change right now, is a, a great support for the truth of the impermanence of this body. Sometimes when we think about death, we're afraid, or it seems all, it's all doom and gloom, and we don't want to go there. But if we if we really bring our attention to the present and notice at the end of a breath, there's if you're really with the breath when you're when you're practicing anapanasati, at the end of the breath there's a there's a, a stopping before the next breath comes. The next breath, it's not like it goes to the end and the next breath, then the next breath, there's a little gap. And in that gap, there's like, don't know. It's like, it could, could die now. There might not be another breath. It's there, each breath, and we, we ignore it. It's not uh, convenient. So, you know, one day, that will be. That little, that little gap at the end of our breath will become a long gap. And consciousness will move on. The elements will move, move on into different form. And so when we, when we bring this to mind, when we recollect the truth of our own <coughs> mortality, rather than, for me anyway, rather than it being like doom and gloom and morbid, it's like, okay, I don't know how long I'm going to be here, so I want to use the time well, as well as I can. And when I forget, and I think of myself as like, oh, I'm this age, and so I've probably got another however many years, there's a sort of a carelessness. There's a sort of assumption that, well, I can, I can do that later, or, or I'll just let that argument go on a bit longer. I'm not going to, I'm not going to acknowledge my part because I'll do it in a few days, or next time I see that person, or whatever. And uh, and yet you don't know if you're going to see them again, in truth. 
So when we bring the recollection of death close to us, it's, it, we want to sort out our stuff. We want to clear our business and have as clean a slate as we can. So, it could come at any moment, you know. I don't want to be, I don't want to be scaremongering or anything like that, but it's the truth. It could come at any moment. So, you know, what if, if we were to die tonight, if we were to die at 10 o'clock tonight, what, what do we need to do? What is unfinished in this heart? It's a good reflection, a serious reflection. So we have to make peace with ourselves and we have to make peace with others. We have to clear the slate as best as we can. And then if we have the good fortune to live beyond 10 o'clock tonight, you know, how are we going to use the time? Okay, so I'm going to offer that today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.